You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Hey, I um, want to say welcome. My name's Ross. I'm the senior pastor here at Bethel, and get the privilege most Sundays to be here at the South Campus, and... Um, if you're visiting with us today, I'm uh, super glad you're here. It's a real privilege to us that you'd be here with us. And one of the ways to let us know is uh, that you let us know you were here in that black book. And then don't forget to get your coffee uh, when you leave. So, hey, I got one announcement, and then we're going to resume our study in First Peter. But on May the 1st, and this is in your bulletin, uh, but on May the 1st here at the South Campus at 5 o'clock, what we're going to have is an information meeting about our trip to Israel that we're going to take. We're going to leave January the 22nd, uh, come back on February the 2nd. And if you're thinking about, man, I've always wanted to go to Israel, uh, this is the meeting for you. We would love for you to come. You'll find out about it. You can even sign up that night. would love for you to go to Israel uh, with us uh, next January. So uh, put that in your calendar. All right, so here's the deal. We are looking at the um, letter that Peter wrote to the church in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And we are in 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning, and we are going to look at a few verses. And um, to kind of set it up, here's where I want to start. There was an old movie. Uh, I say it's old. I can't believe it's 15 years old. But do you remember the movie Ants? You remember that movie? If you have kids or had kids back then, you, you probably did. Well, so here's, the movie starts out, uh, it shows some ants working, but it starts, there's this the camera angle, such as that is in animation. But it starts out over the top of this big city, and the camera angle comes all the way down, you know, down through the buildings, down the, uh, into the blades of grass, down the blades of grass, into the dirt. And finally, the camera lands on this room, okay? And in this room is this ant, who's the main character of it, and he's laying on a therapist's couch. And the ant is named Z. And here's, here's the conversation that ensues once you get there. Since all my life I've lived and worked in the big city. I always tell myself, there's got to be something better out there. Maybe I, maybe I think too much. I think everything must go back to the fact that I had a very anxious childhood. My, my mother never had time for me. When, when you're the middle and a child in a family of five million, you don't get much attention. She says, and I mean, how is that possible? I've, I've always had these abandonment issues. They've always plagued me. I mean, my father was basically a drone, like I said. I mean, the guy flew away when I was just a larva. And my job, don't get me started on it, because it really annoys me. I mean, I wasn't cut out to be a worker. I mean, I feel physically inadequate. I mean, my whole life, I've never been able to lift any more than 10 times my own body weight. And when you get down to it, handling dirt just isn't my idea of a rewarding career. I mean, what? What is it? I mean, am I supposed to do everything for the colony? What about my needs? Well, what about me? I mean, I've, I've got to believe there's some place out there that's better than this. Otherwise, I'd just curl up into a larva position and weep. The whole system makes me feel insignificant. To which the therapist responds, Excellent, you just made a breakthrough. And he said, I, I, I did? She said, yes, you are insignificant. So the 
scene goes from there and they show all these millions of ants and the new ants being born and getting divided up into their different roles. And he, Z goes back to his workstation. He says, okay, I've just got to keep a positive attitude, a good attitude. Even though I'm utterly insignificant, I'm insignificant, but with an attitude. You know, it's, it's tragically humorous, isn't it? it it's... Um, it, the movie's getting at what, what so many feel deep inside of them. That, you know what, if I wake up, I mean, the biggest fear is that ultimately I am insignificant. And, and so Peter, he's writing to first century readers that would have felt very much the same way. I mean, they're believers in a place called Asia Minor. They are a vast minority. They are not a minority with a voice. They're a minority without a voice. They're living in communities that by and large are, are neutral or hostile towards them. Many of them can't make ends meet because nobody will employ them. No, no, nobody will, will go to them for work anymore because of what they think about them because they're followers of Christ. And that's not to mention the persecution that has just come into the land. That, that, that they were in a place of, of they could die for this belief, this confession that Jesus is their Lord, that He was the Son of the only true God, that He died and was resurrected, and they, they were the objects of scorn. And, and we know from the letter we've looked at, these are second-generation Christians. They've, they've seen the first generation come. Any of them have died or, or been persecuted or martyred. And I'm sure that they fight this waking up and thinking, okay, listen, did we make a mistake here? Because, man, not only are we insignificant, we are that. We, we also are persecuted and we're suffering and it doesn't look like it's going to get any better. To which Peter writes, you're right, it, it's a good chance it's going to get worse. But he spends the whole first chapter telling them, yes, you, you are exiles. You are strangers. Because ultimately, you are out of place here. This, this isn't your home. It's where you live. It's where you work. It's where you have influence. But this isn't your home. This isn't your permanent address. And then he tells them, listen, this is who you are. And he and he spends verses extolling the glories of Jesus. All that he is and all that he'd done. And then says to them, And you, you're his chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. And they needed to hear that. And so as Peter's been talking to them about how to live in a world that is in conflict with them, he's, he's going to turn now in these few verses and talk about how do we live with each other as the church. How do we, how do we live with each other? So this is how we've lived out in the world. This is how we are to engage. Well, how do we live with each other? And so I want you to see what he does here. And I'm, I'm going to begin reading in verse 7. I'm going to read a few verses, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. But beginning in, in chapter 4, verse 7 of 1 Peter, 
He says it this way. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, he begins this uh, with a bit of perspective. The, the end of all things is, is at hand. It, but Peter's speaking about the coming of Jesus, the, the next event, the next significant event on the horizon of history. And see, the reason that the, the end is at hand is because of the ministry of Jesus, that his death and his burial and his resurrection had inaugurated the last days. And so I want to be clear, though, when the New Testament speaks about the end is at hand or uh, that the time is near, it is not speaking about immediacy. The New Testament is speaking about imminence. See, the doctrine that Christ can return at any moment, that there's no, nothing left to be done. There's no other predicted event that must happen or intervene before his return. It could be another 200 years. It could be another two minutes. That at any moment, the Father will turn to his Son seated at his right hand. Say, it's time. At any moment. And see, there's both comfort and there's this calibration here, if I can say it that way. See, on the one hand, there, there's comfort. You know, as Jesus is with his disciples, and he's, it's the last days that he's with them before he's going to go to the cross, he'll say to them in John 15, he'll say, look, take heart. Don't fear. Because I'm going to go to prepare a place for you and come again to receive you, that where I am you may be also. In Acts, we see the disciples, they're, they're with Jesus right there in the first chapter, in the first few verses, and he's, and he's there, and he, and he tells them, listen, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And then he, he ascends into heaven to the, to the right hand of the Father. And the disciples, the, the Texas, are standing there looking, and the angel says, what are you doing? He's going to come back just the way he left. In fact, the next letter that Peter will write, he'll say that the promise that Jesus left us, here's the promise, that the promise is we're waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. John Calvin said it. He said, listen, it ought to be the chief concern of every believer to fix his mind constantly on Christ's return. Alexander McLaren, another commentator, he said it this way. Love how these old, old commentators talked. It says, the primitive church thought more about the second coming of Jesus than about death or heaven. They were not looking for a cleft in the ground called the grave, but for a 
cleavage in the sky called glory. They weren't waiting for the undertaker. They were watching for the upper taker. Isn't that great? You know, it not only is a comfort, but it's a just great calibration for us. My daughter, my youngest daughter, Catherine, um, I think we've, we've talked about Taylor Swift in here, right? So we were listening to a song the other day, but Taylor Swift, and the song's called Tim McGraw. And she's singing the words, and I was like, hey, have you ever heard a Tim McGraw song? She's like, no, I haven't. I was like, I can fix that. <laughs> so, you know, I Googled it, pulled one up. The first one that came up, it, it's, it's a terribly sad song. I mean, I think she's looking at me like, yeah, I've had all the Tim McGraw I want. Um, but, you know, so the, the, the singer, he, the perspective is, you know, he tells about a friend who got bad results from the, from the doctor, and it was sinking into him, and he saying, man, this might really be the end. And so he says to his friend, he says, man, how do you deal with that? I mean, what, what do you do with that kind of knowledge that this might be, this might really be the end? And you, you remember the chorus of the song? He says, well, I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. and went 2.7 seconds in a bull named Fu Manchu. But here's the, here's the real poignancy of it. It says, and I loved deeper and spoke sweeter and gave forgiveness that I had been denying. And he said, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you're dying. Peter would say, listen, here's how we want to end. We want to end. We, we, we want to live like the end is near. We want to end, live as though, man, it could happen this afternoon. If, if you knew Jesus was coming back today, what would you do? You know, the question is this. Let's, let's pose it this way. What, what's the end to which you are living for? I mean, well, what's the end in my... Well, what's the point on the horizon out there that you're... You think, that, man, that's the end. That's what I'm trying to get to. Is it more money? Is it a name for yourself? Is it, is it, is it retirement? You know, I, say, I, would, I would say it this way, that any point on the horizon that we've made our end, and that point is less than the end that Peter's speaking about, the end that is near, the, the return of Jesus, any point on the horizon short of that or different than that diminishes what you're called to in this life. And the degree to which you've diminished that call is the degree to which you've diminished your joy. See, the greater the end, the greater the joy. There's only one end that won't disappoint. I mean, there's only one end that ultimately can meet all your expectations. There's only one end that completely and truly, without reservation, when it comes, you would say, yeah, oh man, that was worth it. Every sacrifice in my life was worth it. And way more so. And what is it that has the controlling pull on your life? See, we have, we have lots of goals, and, and goals are great. I mean, maybe your goal is to get a college degree, or 
Maybe your goal is, you know, I really want to get married. Maybe your goal is like, man, I want to drive. I just want to get my driver's license. I got the son, 16 days from a driver's license. I'm sure part of, I remember when I was there, I was like, Lord, just don't come back till after that, okay? <laughs> Maybe it's a financial goal. Maybe it's a career goal. I mean, and those are fine. I mean, those are good. It's good to have goals. I mean, submit them, submit them to the Lord. But if any of those goals become the end to which you're living for, then that's the problem. So, the, so if you don't reach the goal, I mean, so failure comes or tragedy comes or life throws a curve. Life always throws a curve. So you've got to hold those goals loosely while clinging tight to the end, to the, to the end that is near, the, the coming of Jesus. Only then. Listen, that's the only way somebody with a financial goal will ever be able to be financially generous. I mean, if your end is a certain amount of money or status or portfolio, you never are able to live generously until that end is somehow reached. It's the wrong end. It keeps the single person from becoming desperate. It doesn't mean it takes away all the loneliness. It doesn't mean it takes away the desire to be married. But if that's, if that's the end, it's the wrong end to live for. It's the only thing that will help a guy make the choice to leave his office and go home to his family. Not worried that somebody's going to get ahead of him while he's gone or the whole place is going to fall apart. I mean, that's... That's the only hope you have. The one without the college degree, I mean, that you could truly know. It's the only way to truly know man, that your identity is not in education. It's great. I mean, get a degree, I think it's great. It's not the end. Maybe worse than not reaching the goal is that you actually do reach the goal. So, one of my favorite illustrations is Tom Brady. Quarterback, New England Patriots, won four Super Bowls, three MVPs. I can hardly say that without getting a little nauseated. But he is. I mean, like it or not, he's going to be one of the greatest quarterbacks that go down in history. And he was on the 60 Minutes interview with Steve Croft. It's, it's a fascinating interview. And he says this. He says, you know... Talking to Steve, he said, Why do I have four Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would look at me and say, Hey, man, that, that's, that's what it is. You, you've reached it. You've done everything you were working for. He said, Listen, I have reached my goal, my dream, my life's aim. And me, I think, God, it, it, it's got to be more than this. It, I mean, this isn't, this can't be everything. So Croft, I mean, he shoots the gap. He says, well, well what is the answer? And Brady says, I, w I wish I knew. I wish I knew. There's only one end to live for. And that end is imminent. It's near. You know, and it comes with this Peter says, self-control and sober-mindedness. 
So if you, I mean, if you want a simple definition, you could write out in the margin, sanity. Right? I mean, most of the end is near talk comes with kind of an insanity. You know, the sandwich boards and the guy with the bullhorn. That's not what Peter's talking about. Self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I mean, we, we might expect, maybe, listen, it's a call for some extraordinary behavior. We've got to buy all the water we can, right? And, and get a place and, and have a bunch of gold. Because, man, that, that'll be what we need, right? If it all comes down, you know, at least you got your gold. You know, the nearness, this thought leads believers to lose their head or act irrationally. Peter says, no, no, no. on the contrary. We think sensibly as we contemplate the brevity of life. If you lived to a hundred, it is a breath compared to the eternity that you were created for. So we don't set dates. We don't read the headlines of the newspaper like tea leaves. But we do. Listen, we realize, listen, God's bringing history to a close and it should provoke us to de depend on Him. And how we do that, that manifests in our prayer. I mean, going to the Lord in prayer. No, it's the work. I, I, I say this. I say it carefully. I, I, I don't. But you know, Jesus, he proclaims on the cross, it, it is finished. And it is finished. Everything's finished. And yet, the one thing Jesus continues to do, the one ministry that still abides for Jesus is he's seated at the right hand of the Father. You know what he's doing? He's praying, he's making intercession for you. The disciples, when they were with Jesus, the only thing they asked Jesus to teach them is so you teach us to pray. I mean, there was something about the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, part of the eternal Godhead, that in His humanity, He found the need to get up early in the morning and to commune with the Father. I always wondered, how did he close the prayer? And in my name. You know, the, the reason we don't pray more is not that we're too busy. Maybe we are too busy. It's that we're too confident. And we kind of reserve prayer for the, you know, when I'm in over my head, God, you got to get me out of this. But short of that, we kind of live like we've we got it all under control, don't we? Well, verse 8, he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sins. So don't miss Peter's saying here. So, above all. I mean, above all of it. Love one another. You know, the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, I'll read a little bit more of it in a second, but... What Paul's saying is that and as, as we live as believers, if we don't have love, we don't have anything. He says it this way, if I speak in tongues of men and angels, 
but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, I'm able to understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge. And if I have all the faith so as to move a mountain, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's a good reminder this morning. Love does not keep score. It grants forgiveness. So your scorekeeping ledger. It's a great morning to just leave that right here. You know, Peter's the one that asked Jesus, you know, how, how many times do I forgive my brother? And he proposed seven times. This seems generous. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, no, not seven. Seventy times seven. You know, this is it's important for us to hear, to, to remind ourselves. The, the, the culture is not a culture that we drift towards sacrificial love for one another. You know, maybe I'd say it this way. Maybe I'd direct this if you're married this morning. A love directed primarily at yourself seeks to attack the other in their place of sin. When the love for yourself trumps all the other love, you will seek to attack at the place of sin. At weddings, I often, often at weddings, I read a portion of 1 Corinthians 13. It says this, love is patient, love is kind. And it's not jealous. Love does not brag and it's not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It, it does not seek its own. It, it's not provoked. It, it doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And then I remind the couple that's standing before me that have no idea what they're getting into, by the way. That listen, you, you stand here as brother and sister in Christ, which means you're going to live forever with him in eternity. You, you share an eternal relationship like all of us who are believers do. And so I say, let that eternal relationship feed and nourish the temporal marital relationship so that you taste eternity in your marriage. You taste eternity in your home. You taste eternity in your small group. We'd love one another. And then he says, verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The word hospitality means the, literally means the love of strangers or to receive a stranger. Most people think it means get the house clean. But, but it's reaching out and, and taking in. I mean, there are things that are going to happen in your home that could never happen in a church. There are things going to happen in your home like on a 
Thursday night around sandwiches and, and cards that could never happen here. That we would, we would show hospitality to each other. I remember when, when my son Jay was born, I was in seminary, uh, and it was it actually it was an incredibly inconvenient time for him to be born. But, I mean, no offense, but... Um, but I remember, so unless, you know, I was trying to check in for a minute from school to be a good husband, and I had cleaned the house. Man, I had cleaned. It might have been the greatest house cleaning that ever was. And um, so then she, she goes into the hospital, and her parents come the next day. And I remember she's still in the hospital with Jay, and I meet her folks at home, and they're coming in with, with all their stuff. I was thinking, man, this clean house is about to get trashed. So I, I put their luggage in the garage. <laughs> Asked them if they didn't mind just sort of living out of their suitcases in the garage for the... My mother-in-law still remembers that, as it turns out. <laughs> Peter adds without grumbling, because you know why? He knows, he knows it's hard. Knows after a while... It, can try on your nerves, and he says, listen, don't cave into the temptation to begrudge. And then in verse 10 and 11, look at what he says. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. You know, we talk about this verse at Discover Bethel. If you've been to Discover Bethel in the last couple of years, you've heard me talk about this. And I talk about that, you know, as the church, as believers, we really have three resources. I mean, we, and, and, and two of the resources I totally get. I mean, the first of those resources is the Word of God. I mean, we have the very words of God. It's inspired by God through human authors, believers, and it's preserved for us. And we, I mean, if we want to know God, we want to hear God. We, we have his words. That's why at every setting we're in here at Bethel, we open God's word. It's one of our, it's one of our resources. I mean, we couldn't do the Christian life without it. The second of those resources is the Spirit of God. I mean, the very Spirit of God that indwells us and seals us and empowers us and enlivens us. And it's remarkable. I mean, the Spirit of God that, in, that empowered Jesus in His ministry so that Jesus could turn to His disciples and go, man, I'm going to send you the Helper. I'm going to send you my Spirit, and you're going to do greater things than I did. The Spirit of God. Now listen, I totally get the Word of God and the Spirit of God. It's the third resource I don't get so much. I mean, if I were picking a third resource, it wouldn't be this one. I'd pick angels. I mean, right? I mean, angels are awesome. I mean, they got wings and eyes, and they're scary, and they fight demons. I mean, I would pick angels. It's not the third resource. You know what it is? It's the people of God. And why that's so hard for me to understand is because I know people. I'm one of them. That's what Peter's saying. I mean, it's just, 
It's a resource. He's speaking of, listen, you have been given, you have received, you have been deposited with a portion of the very grace of God. He's speaking here of spiritual gifts. A couple of ways to define it. Spiritual gifts, a God-given ability to serve the body of Christ wherever and however he may direct. Another way to define it is the divine enablement by God that occurs when you believe in Christ that allows you to function in the body of Christ in a unique way. And he begins by saying, listen, each of you, every believer has a spiritual gift. Every believer. If you want to read more of the New Testament about it, so 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4 speaks of the spiritual gifts that that God graciously grants to believers. And you, if you're a believer, you you have a portion of God's grace. You, you, You have a spiritual gift. And spiritual gifts are not for us to to boast about. I mean, we didn't do anything to merit them. God's the giver. We, they're, they're not, we, don't, we don't congratulate ourselves with them. They've been given to us to serve others. I mean, that's the point. It's a gift given to you that's not for you. It's for everybody around you. To strengthen, to build up, to, to edify so how do we discover our spiritual gifts? Well, I, I, I'm kind of sour on spiritual gift assessments. And if, but if you haven't taken one in a while, I think you should take one. The problem with those are, it just kind of depends on what you ate that morning, right? I, mean, I remember guys in seminary, they take spiritual gift assessments. They took the spiritual gift assessment with the idea that they wanted to be Chuck Swindoll and so they answered the questions in such a way, and it came out and says, hey, I'm the spiritual gift of Chuck Swindoll. And everybody around them was like, yeah, I don't think so. I don't, I don't, I'm not so sure that's what it is. You know how you discover your spiritual gifts? People around you. People in your small group. People that are in your life. You know, say something like, you know, gosh, Love being in your home. Actually, I love being in my home when you're in my home better than all by myself. You have the gift of hospitality or you have the gift of encouragement. You're the first person I thought to call. Or in your small group and conversation goes like a lot of small group conversations go as you're around studying and then somebody just sort of speaks clarity into it and says, you know, and you just think, man, I, when, when, you, when you say that or, or, or when you begin to explain it, it just all becomes so clear to me. That we'd live life with each other enough that somebody would know that about us. That's how you discover your spiritual gift. And how do you use your gift? Well, just, just get involved. And if you say, well, I don't know what my spiritual gift is, that's all right. We've got a lot of opportunities for you to figure it out. And if you're in the wrong place, we'll let you know. We'll help you find the right place. 
I tell, I tell you, if you don't know or you're not exercising this spiritual gift that is so vital to our church body, it is my plea for you to do that. I mean, we, we can't grow in Christ. We can't shine the glory of the God that created us in the way that we are meant to without all of the spiritual gifts coming together as one body shining this light. Serve the body in some way. And you'll find that that overflows into the rest of your life. Spiritual gifts are not fundamentally a privilege. They're a responsibility. I'm going to call to be faithful to what God's bestowed. So we're stewards. I mean, whatever the gift is, we're stewards of it. We've received it from God for the purpose of giving it away to others. I mean, listen, that's a great definition of stewardship, no matter what it is. Spiritual gift, financial resources, time. It's been given to you for the benefit of those around you. And then he says this, and I'll make this point and we'll conclude. But did you notice the word varied grace? It's word, it literally means like multicolored or kaleidoscope or rainbow. I mean, that you've been given a portion of the varied, the kaleidoscope of God's grace. Endless, matchless grace. You're a recipient of that. You're a steward of it. To which you'll give an account some days. I'm going to stand before the Lord and say, what did you do with the, with the grace I gave you? And we'll give an account for that. But what's so interesting is the way Peter uses this, varied grace. He uses that word varied one other time. It is in chapter 1, verse 6, when he speaks of various trials. And there is this sense in which that there is grace in the body to meet the trials in the body. That he's poured out his grace into the body for the sake of the trials and the sufferings and the hard days and the seasons of growth in the body. Many people say, man, I just need more grace. I'll tell you where you get more grace. Look around. We're overflowing with God's grace in here. Well, so if it's a speaking gift, you, you speak the words of God. Not your own words, not your own wisdom. The wisdom of God that comes from His Word that's faithful to the gospel and then if you serve, you serve in the strength of God. This isn't your own strength. This isn't, this isn't an estimation of what you think you can do. It's strength that comes from God, which, which means it's likely more than you can do or something you think you can't do. You, you serve in His strength so that He gets all the glory in the end. That's what He says at the end of 11. In order that in everything God may be glorified, through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever.
You know, when you come to settle in your life that living for your glory is such a, a small and worthless endeavor. And you begin to realize that God has prepared you to live for His glory. And you'll come alive. That is where, that is where joy is found. That your life reflects the glory, not of your own, but of, but of God's. This great young life leader probably told you, Ronnie Smith, he would say to you every time he saw you, whose name are you making big? Isn't that a great question? Whose name are you making big? Your name or God's name? I'll close with this. There was a Civil War chaplain named Charles McCabe. And he <clears throat> writes about that during the Civil War, he was incarcerated um, in a prison in Richmond, Virginia, with what he called the Boys in Blue. That was the, that was the Union soldiers in the Civil War. And they... they would be captured, they'd, they'd go to prison, and many of them would end up dying in prison, passing away in prison. And you knew that if you went there. He says, one night about 10 o'clock through the stillness and the darkness, we heard the tramp of some coming feet. It was a new prisoner. It was a young father, a mother's son, and his heart almost fainted as he looked under the cold walls and thought of the suffering inside. Tired and weary, he sat down, he put his face in his hands and, and wept. So just then there was this lone voice of, a, of deep and sweet pathos. And it began to sing out from an upper window. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. A dozen manly voices joined in the second line. Praise Him, all creatures here below. And then by the time the third line was reached, more than a score of hearts were full, and these joined to send the words on high. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. And about this time, the whole prison was alive and seemed to quiver with the sacred song as from every room and every cell those brave men sang, Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And as the song died out on the still night, enveloped in darkness, that young man into the silence rose and shouted. Prisons would be palaces, uh, prisons would be palaces proved to be if Jesus would dwell there with me. If you would, would you bow with me as we pray? Father, we thank you for the letter that you inspired Peter to write and Father that you preserved it by your spirit in the community of saints for all these years and here we hold it 
in our hands in front of us and are able to hear from you. And so, Father, I pray that your word would have its effect on us. I pray, Father, that we would know both the comfort of the imminence of the return of your Son, and that, Father, we also would be challenged and convicted to calibrate our lives that way. We'd love each other. We would show hospitality to each other. Father, we'd serve each other with the grace that you've that you've deposited in us, that you've made us stewards of. Father, we do that for the good of those around us. And that we'd know the joy of what it is to make your name big. Here at Bethel and in Tyler and Father, for every place that you would give us opportunity to display that. Father, I pray for anybody here this morning that hasn't come to the place of trust in your son Jesus. And that, Father, the grace that you would grant them this morning would be the faith to believe that he is their Savior. That the death on the cross was the payment for all their sin, past and present and future. But there's not anything in their life that Jesus did not pay for on that cross, die for, and take to the grave. And that, Lord, they would believe. That three days later, your son walked out of the tomb, risen and glorified. Father, is seated at your right hand even now, making intercession for all of us and awaiting for the trumpet to sound and the end to come, which we know isn't an end. It's the beginning. So, Father, we ask all this. The only way we can, and that's in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.